2: what can journalists, artists, filmmakers, writers, what can they do in the face of historical revisionism?
0: You just have to keep telling the truth and not get tired of telling the truth and not be afraid.
2: As simple as that. And it's not easy to do, I know. Hello listeners, I'm Mariah.
3: And I'm Erwin. Welcome to Podcast 1081, Mga Kwentong Martial Law.
2: In this show, we invite people to talk about their stories, experiences, lessons, and their small sparks of light during the darkest days in Philippine history.
3: Well, the older generations, including mine, well, we fucked up. I know. The best we can do is to help you fix our mess.
2: Yeah, and it's my generation's chance to set things right. And we can start with these stories. Tune into Podcast 1081, Mga Kwentong Martial Law.
3: This special limited series is powered by Podmetrics and Podcast Network Asia.
2: So, Erwin, last Monday, have you heard that Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp were shut down for around six hours?
3: Yeah, somebody sent me the facts on that, yeah.
2: Yeah, and it was very strange because the last post on my Facebook feed was, was like a CNN report of a survey that said that Slightly more than half of Filipinos agreed with the statement that it's dangerous to print or broadcast anything critical of the administration, even if it's the truth. So that was the last post on my feed. Everything else was blacked out. I didn't know what was going on. Mm. I mean, it was quiet, of course, but it's unsettling to think that just disappear that fast. Facebook or wherever we get our information.
3: But what did they say? What happened?
2: I couldn't load it. That's the thing. Hmm. The link was broken. Okay. The, the day after, when I wake up, it's back online again. And then I see news that Bongbong Bong Marcos filed his candidacy for presidency. Uh, yeah.
3: Well, I have to admit, no, I didn't expect in my lifetime that I would actually see, I would hear of the Kilisong Bagong lipunang having a Marcos as their presidential candidate again. But uh, I guess I we're hoping, here.
2: I was hoping I'd never see the day that would come either.
3: Oh, yeah. Well... Well, it's here now, so at least the, what we can do is I think we're having these conversations. And I'm, yeah, I think it's interesting because during the time that I grew up in, I think we had news blackouts as well. But these were just main channels.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one the fault of Facebook itself and the service. But then internet shutdowns are happening around Southeast Asia. It could happen here.
3: Yeah. What do people say? What, what's been happening? I mean, who's been doing that or any reason?
2: myanmar to there um to suppress dissent and Mm. it just got me thinking that these channels of information where we get them who says them where we like i mean facebook being free right that's where a lot of disinformation Mm. proliferates yeah and it's yeah i mean information still is power it's where it comes from it's who gives it who controls those avenues and i think that's why it's good that today we have a guest who It's a journalist and a writer who's also been advocating for truth. Yeah.
3: Well, also our guest, I mean, because I mentioned that that I grew up at a time where there was no free press because I was born in 1976. For 10 years, we didn't have a free press. But starting in the early 80s, we did have the Mosquito Press. Our guest's mother was actually one of the leading lights of that. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to see from her perspective what it was like growing up with a mother like that and... Was such a uh, such a leading figure, pre edsa and post edsa and seeing how well what how it informed her own career after and her advocacy. Yeah. So without further ado,
2: <laughs> we'd like to introduce Miss Kara Magsanok Alikpala. Hi Kara. Hi.
3: Okay. I'll cut to the chase. What do you remember? Do you have have any memories of September 21, 1972?
0: I don't know if what I remember happened on September 21, 1972. But my earliest memory was my grandfather was at our place. I was with my mom and dad watching television. And then all of a sudden there was an announcement. I don't remember what. But the mood in the room changed. Uh, My grandfather, who was a government official, looked very worried. And he had the Kasambahay call his driver. And he told the driver, and he told my mommy that I have to leave early and he just looked very worried. He said, this sounds bad. So it, I just remember feeling the fear, the uncertainty, the eerie. That's what I remember, which I think might have been September 21.
3: And how old were you then?
0: I don't answer those questions.
3: <laughs> <Sige>. <laughs> I'm but ageless,
0: bon.
3: Ageless, man. But uh, okay, but 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 yes, but you were you were you. I was were...
0: very young. I was you very young.
3: You're very young. Yeah, and could you I describe...
0: wasn't ten. I wasn't ten.
3: Well, that's Neil Dasa who was ten. <laughs> yeah, but how could you describe? I mean, of course, that, that didn't stop it. That it, that was only the beginning, 1972. But the years under martial law, what were they like for you?
0: Well, first, I think I have to, maybe my experience of Marshall is divided into three acts. In the 70s, and then 1981, when it was supposed to be lifted, and I was in college. And then 1983, the assassination. Those are the distinct chapters in my mind. So in the 70s, all I remember was a lot of fear, a lot of, you know, takutan na... Metrocom if you say something wrong about the Marcoses. Even in your own homes, you have to whisper. Not in our home, though, but a lot of homes were like that. And an uncle of mine, you know, went home past midnight. So he was detained at Camp Krami because we had a curfew. People had to cut their hair. There were all these slogans. There was this weird feeling. I mean, it felt like communist China based on what I saw. I mean, and even... Um, all the news, I think, always had to be about Marcos. The headlines, anything, everything. Yeah, so before you weren't allowed to say anything bad about Marshall or about the Philippines or about the Marcoses, especially the First Lady. So you couldn't even say that the Pasig river was dirty. I mean, what river in the world is perfectly clean, right? But you were not allowed. When a foreigner fell into a manhole, and I remember my mom, a journalist, wrote a story about that. You know, she got flack for that. Some of her stories and that were banned. I mean, many things you can't say. So you just knew there was something wrong because you couldn't do anything naturally. You had to think twice about many things until I guess it became so ingrained in some people to self-censor themselves in the way they spoke, in the way they behave. Mm-hmm. That was a time also I, I, I would hang out with my mom. I was so fascinated by her job. So I would hang out with her on coverage, whether it was watching a play at the CCP or covering a traffic accident. I was with her. But I remember going back to the office where she had to write her story because there was no email then, no computer. She had to go to the office where the typewriter was, where the layout guys were. And there was a media censor sitting in the office who would check all stories. So a lot of journalists where she worked started to learn to work around the censor. They had developed writing styles to avoid censorship, whether it be using allegory metaphor or my mom would always write it's a story from like a conversation in an essay stuff like that everyone there got very creative but sometimes and a lot of times her her articles never came out in the newspaper they were banned or censored so that's what I remember and I also remember some relatives who were in government were told that they would not get promotions until my mom started to tone down whatever that means and my dad also started not to get he's a doctor a surgeon and there are very few in his profession, so the chance that you need him with his specialty, with a sco- which was colorectal, was really high, but no government official went to see him anymore. I guess there were instructions. I had an aunt who disappeared. To this day, we never found her body. I had an uncle who was detained. Many un- uncles who had been jailed as well for, pro- for simple protests. So I felt martial law because I have friends who lived in a bubble, didn't experience it this way, but I experienced it this way. And I remember no one could travel. In the early seventies, you need a special permit. So a lot of the young now, well, pre-pandemic, could just you know travel anywhere, right? It's just free-flowing. But oh. back then, no one was allowed to go abroad. So that was the seventies.
3: Oh well. So
0: I'm not going to go to my second chapter, my second app.
3: Well, I, I think Mariah has a question.
2: Yeah, yeah go ahead. Uh, you said there was a media sensor sitting right in your office, observing everyone on a day-to-day basis. What what does that like? You should ask my mom because she was the one working with that sensor. But Are in the beginning, story no. What they would
0: say in the beginning, it was very uneasy. But later on, they found a way around them. And of course, you know how it works. Sometimes you develop camaraderie, so they mm-hmm. became friendly with each other. So at a certain point, they had to take out the media sensor or keep replacing the media
3: sensor. Mm-hmm. Because so they got so no friendly.
0: Fa- yeah, because they got so familiar.
3: With your mom, Leti Magsanok, where was she writing at this time?
0: She was already with the bulletin today.
3: Hmm.
0: Yeah, and then late '70s she became the editor of the Panorama magazine.
3: Okay, much famous enough. Then you're actually in the Panorama. But can I have to ask? So, how did they? Do you remember any specific way your your mom or any of the journalists at the time did they went around the censor? Was there any creative way they did it that sticks out?
0: Um. Well, like um, one of the writers who had a column, and most of these creative writing happened among the women writers one writer i forget her name she would always um her her columns were mostly about fables about you know she'd talk about an animal and this animal and that and every time you know that this animal actually represents this person and that person that was her column most of the time Mm. so others would um I forget, you know, or there was some reading between the lines type of writing. So sometimes mm-hmm. the readers even read in between the lines even though there was no meaning to be read. Uh-uh. So all kinds, all kinds. My mom used that conversation style all the time. Like there were there was a fake conversation she would reenact, you know, just so it would turn out funny
2: or sarcastic and not so offensive. Leti Jimenez Magsanok was a Filipino journalist and editor, notable for her role as the editor of the Manila Bulletin's Panorama and the crusading weekly opposition tabloid during the Marcos administration, Mr. and Miss Special Edition. She also became the editor-in-chief of the Philippine Daily Inquirer from 1991 to 2015.
3: Who do you remember seeing her pissing off the most?
2: Oh, the president. Of course, she lost her job.
0: for <laughs> pissing off the president. As three years of the editor of the Panorama, and even as a columnist of the bulletin, like I said, a lot of her writings were bad. She had been, um, you know, scalded by the publisher many times. Her attention had been called. She had been interrogated by the military for some. But 1981, President Marcos said he lifted martial law. And he ushered in, I think, the New Republic. Prior to that, it was the New Society. This time, the New Republic He was inaugurated at the Quirino Grandstand, like all presidents. And there was this big, as usual, a big bash. You know, in the way that, you know, the first lady always has a big pageant for things. And my mom wrote an article about the inauguration and about the new republic. She would even say it's not her best written article she wrote it in an hour. She said that the story kind of wrote itself, but basically it was very sarcastic. She was uh, talking about corruption. She was talking about, she was questioning the results of the elections and so many other things that, you know, Mm -hmm. the president didn't want to hear. And so after that article came out, three government officials, including secretaries, I mean, cabinet members, wrote the publisher of the bulletin, Mr. Hans Menzi, Mm -hmm. and threatened him with sedition, libel, all those And basically saying, if you don't get rid of the writer, then something's going to happen to you guys. You know, like, you're going to be shut down. Mm -hmm. Um, Disassociate yourself with the writer. So there was pressure from outside. And I also heard that the president himself called the publisher, which the president would always deny. Mm -hmm. So he called my mom to his office and the staff and, and told them what happened. And he had always tried to defend them all these years. But I think this time, he had no choice. He had to choose between keeping keeping the publication or just letting go of my mom and forced her to resign. So she lost her job. So that defined, or at least in my life, it was another era in martial law when it was supposedly lifted and apparently there was no press freedom. So there was really no lifting.
3: Uh, and what was it like when she went home? I mean, in your head Yeah, you
0: know, I, I found out about the news. I was watching Channel 7. Most of us watched Channel 7 for the news back then because although the news was controlled, um, the news anchor then, Tina Munson Palma, would deliver the news very creatively. She would read what had to be read in the way the government wanted to hear it. But her facial expressions gave away how she felt about the news. Do you remember this, Erwin? Yeah, yeah. Oh, fantastic. So any news, you know, should a uh-huh. smirk, you know, but you can't falter for that, right? You can say it's a tick or whatever. So like I said, people found creative ways around censorship. So, so I we heard the news that Leti Jimenez Monsana resigned, blah, blah. And I was stunned. I, I had no idea because my mom tells me everything. Hmm. So I just asked my grandmother who was there. I said, what's happening? What are they doing to my mom? I, first time I really felt fear. There was a lot of talk of fear all the time but I was never afraid because I grew up in a household that was very brave but for the first time I was scared and so you know because they were not just taking away my mom's life you know she never did this for anything but for the love of journalism she was never really pro or anti anyone it's just like I want to tell the truth I want to tell a story out of the purest of intention so I just called her office And I got connected by the operator. No one knows the operator these days. It was quick. Normally, I wait so long for the operator to connect me, but it was a quick connection. And my mom just said, I'll talk to you when I get home. And so she came home. We all waited for her. It was really a dark and quiet night. And she told us what happened. And we didn't know what was going to happen next. But of course, we were afraid for her. And since then, there have been many threats and all that. It wasn't easy. But my mom was unfazed. And every time we asked her, she says she's not really brave. Looking back, she was just always naive about consequences. So she never considered herself brave. But a few days after, or maybe two weeks after, for the first time, the National Press Club convened. And all journalists were there to make a statement about what had been known as the Magsanup case. And my mom was invited to speak as well. And that day you would know who your friends were because some people who were invited were afraid to show up, even some relatives who we thought were on our side, but I guess they were afraid for their own livelihood or their own lives. So that was it. And then I was still in college that time. And so it was another story when I had to enter college after that case happened. But anyway, you might have questions.
2: No, I want to hear about how college was. (laughs) (laughs) So I was was a
0: freshman in college when this happened. So we didn't have online freedom boards like you do now, but with a big bulletin board uh-huh. along the hallway where they always posted like the burning issue for the week or the month. And that year and that time, it was the Mugsano case, Manila paper, and then write your reactions. <laughs> and, and so there were a lot of favorable reactions. But there were also negative reactions. And I was also surprised to hear some friends approach me and say, why did your mom do that? Why is she like that? I mean, I thought it was obvious she was doing something correct. But I never realized that, you know, some people think otherwise. And really, those days, as he grew deeper into the 80s, it became so polarized. You're either for Marcos or not. It was so clear cut. Unlike now, right? There's so many shades. But that time, you're either here or you're not here. And it was so awkward sometimes to walk by that hallway all the time because a lot of my friends, some of them were children of the government officials
1: mm-hmm.
0: who were pro marcos and even the officials who actually wrote um, the publisher, Hans Menzi, to get rid of my mom. So there was a hot debate. There was a, there were forums held. And I remember, I don't know if you know Danton Remoto.
3: I know Danton Remoto. I
0: know. He was a student back then. He was so at the time and he just had all the questions he knew the issues by heart you know my mom saying who is this guy he's so good so I remember that and he eventually got hired by mom at the inquiry but anyway so it was talked about a lot in school
3: this was um, in UP
0: no I went to Ateneo
3: Ateneo mm-hmm.
0: it was still ah,
3: so, 1981 okay uh, so, I didn't know Danto was an Ateneista
0: yeah, he was. He doesn't seem like one, right? Whatever that oh, means. And let's not do stereotyping here.
3: <laughs>
0: Hold it right there.
3: Oh, onga, onga, oh, onga. Oh, yeah.
0: But people were still very paranoid. You know, I remember now, I just remember this story. Um, I, I had just started working for the school newspaper. It was my first article. And that year, um, the movie Stella L by Mike Dalian was such a hit. I don't know if Mariah knows this. It's about a rebel nun, right? So a rebel nun who uh, was defending the rights of a labor group, right, against a very oppressive employer, which is really martial law. So I did a story on rebel rebel nuns, which activist nuns, real-life activist nuns. I focus on three. One of them was Sister Pilar Versosa. I don't know if you know her. I think she's a St. Paul nun. But mm. like she had passed away some years ago. So I wrote about Sister Um. I wrote something like, she killed a military man, dash, if you are to believe uh, the military version. That was what I wrote about her. So anyway, the the newspaper was circulated Monday. Uh, I think it was given for free. So they're they're positioned in different parts of the campus and you just pick up your copy. And so before the end of the day, there was an emergency meeting at the school paper, including the moderator. The moderator is usually someone from admin or the faculty to oversee the organization. And they they reprimanded me why I wrote what I wrote. It's seditious. It's libelous. It's going to get people into trouble. You know, the Metricom, the, me- the metrocom will come um. and get us and shut up. The- I said, what did I write? What, what was wrong? And I didn't read the paper, so I read it. I even called my mom to read it. And apparently, my editor took out the line, if you are to believe the military. So it came out that Sister Pilar Versosa was, was a murderer, and I said, I did not write this. Who took mm-hmm. out this, this line? And the editor said, oh, I did, because I thought this is not what you meant. I'm like, you should have asked me, right? I mean, if you think it's so sensitive, you should have asked me. Oh. So to cut the long story short, they had to confiscate all the copies of the school paper all over campus. And they, had to, they were asked to write an eratum and they were discussing the eratum. I said, you write it as you please, but you cannot put the blame on me. I'm a team player, but... You know, in this in this you know situation, I know I did what I was supposed to do. Oh. So the next day, the erratum was circulated, but they blamed me. Huh? So what did yeah, they say? they say we apologize for the error of the writer. So I quit. That was my first and last article for the school paper. But I think my story really is: there was already self censorship. There was fear. Yeah. Even for like a school paper, you know, something as innocent as an article about nuns. So I had to write just to clear my name. I wrote all the department heads, the administration, because many people were upset with me for being responsible for putting Sister Pilar's life at risk. Mm. I had to call Sister Pilar, warn her, apologize her because she would be cased by the military from time to time. And I really didn't want that to happen again. And... At this point, I think Ninoy Aquino had been assassinated. So that's the third act of my experience with martial law. And there was a growing, I'd say, people were more emboldened to speak out. People were getting more progressive. And at that point, we were coming into a... We were having a new incoming president at the Ateneo, who was Father Joaquin Bernas. So he was the only one who actually responded to my letter. I was so surprised. He expressed support and understanding. Which meant a lot to I even framed the letter and in one Christmas party of our class, he actually showed up and, and surprised us. So but, yeah. <laughs> it has nothing to do with Marshall, but you know, I mean the feeling
2: that so no. I had I
0: remembered the story.
3: It's everything to do with Marshall, I think. You know? Yeah. The expression
2: but, of support. Sometimes you can feel alone and Yeah. yeah.
0: Exactly. Yeah. My mom would say that sometimes she knows everyone's behind her, but it's like they're all pushing her to the front line and they're all way behind. Mm -hmm. You know, that's how it is. And I remember, you know, when you would go out at the end of the night, you know, in a nightclub or a a jazz bar, whatever you call it, um, the singers would always sing Bayan Ko as the last song. And so my girlfriends and I, we were hanging out with guys who were pro marcos i mean like the like i was saying so pronounced and so at the end of the night you have the you have us girlfriends standing up you know with our fists up in the air you know to uh to salute the bayan kosong, and the guys were just sitting down that was typical you would see that anywhere i don't know if erwin experienced that um it, you didn't no it, no it, i couldn't go out it, yeah. yeah oh you couldn't but it was so it was a common sight and it was actually very nice to see. Um, and again, this happened right after Nino Aquino was assassinated. There was this growing feeling of people starting to come out of their shells, coming out of fear. So I would join rallies. There would be more rallies. Every Friday back then, there was a rally at Makati Ayala. They call it the yellow confetti. So there will always be yellow confetti. You know, they shred the directory, the yellow pages. Mm-hmm so uh, and you, you didn't know where it was going but you knew you just had to speak out and protest and it's the only way you knew how so a lot of students were there
3: wait so it was yellow because that was the yellow pages was that no, because
0: reason? of the of the colors of ninoy tie a oh. yellow ribbon diba? when yeah. he came home that Uh-oh. was oh so yellow
3: you remember the day i mean because i i personally remember the day 1983 august 21 i have a real clear memory of that day but do you
0: oh yeah my mother went and i regret not going with her she asked me to go with her but i think i had some school assignment so to students out there if you have to choose between a school assignment and something like that don't choose your school assignment i chose to do my school assignment and missed my you know Uh witnessing that yeah so i remember my mom coming into my room and telling me the news that he had been shot i didn't know who Nino aquino was but I mean, I had chills up my spine. My hair was standing. I knew something was going to change.
3: But you didn't know who he was?
0: I mean, I didn't. I knew who he was, but I didn't really realize how big he was. Hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah, because I think that that time they were saying that he, you know, his uh, awareness. That's why one reason he had to come home was the awareness of him was, was starting to fade with him being in exile. So, uh, yeah. So, at least now I now that's very clear to me when you say that you didn't know how big he was.
0: Yeah, I mean, if there are two men who were very brilliant and knew the Filipino psyche, these two men were Marcos and Aquino. Yeah.
3: Did you ever meet the president in person?
0: Yes, I have. Yes.
3: President Marcos.
0: Yes, he's very disarming. And he really has this globe. He's very charismatic. He has that X factor that all great leaders have. So because my grandfather, who was working for government, um, was sworn in as ambassador to Korea. So we had to go to the palace for the, the oath-taking. And I remember when they opened the doors to his office, you know, parang scene parang talaga, whoa. You know, the parang all lights lit and all that. You know, he comes, he walks around with his own light. I mean, the president <laughs> is glowing. I mean, he really looked I'm And I've seen him in other instances, but I think that was the closest I've seen him, if I remember right.
3: Well, no, I... And now I wanna just go back a little bit. Cause it, you said the boys were all sitting down because they're all pro Marcos. And the, <laughs> uh, But how yun, yeah, and you had friends who didn't agree with what your mom did. And but they were you would call them your friends. So how, yeah. how, how was that? I mean, did 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 you just choose not to talk about politics the, the rest of the time?
0: Yes. Well upon cancel culture no one. Eh. <laughs> but I don't know. It's also never my style that if you don't believe in what I believe in, I, I don't talk to you. I, I, it's never been me. Up to this day, some of my good friends are, are pro Marcos. I even had a boyfriend who was very pro Marcos. He was even a member of Takabatam Barangay. So, yeah, but that was tough. But yeah, I never really make yeah. it an issue. Yeah. But yeah, you can't talk about stuff like that with them.
3: Well, it's interesting that we're, I, I know you said we shouldn't talk about contemporary issues or or today, but it's kind of just interesting that we're talking to you today when uh, I didn't, I was just telling Mariah when we were recording the intro that I didn't expect the, to hear of the Kilosang Bagong Lipunan with with Ferdinand Marcos running for president again in my lifetime. <laughs> so, uh, and of course, what did you say, Mariah? You said?
2: Me neither. And I was hoping I never would
3: yeah so after Marcos andre, you did produce all you produced Militar. Militar. yeah and which which is a very extensive document about that era, and a lot of your work since since then has always been about issues that are connected to that era. Why do you think we're here now again?
0: My gosh, don't ask me that question. I keep asking myself that question. <laughs> please don't It's so hard to answer that question. <laughs> In fact, when we were doing batas militar, that was like, I guess, um, just a little over ten years from people power, and the mandate was they, they, the the founders kept telling us the price of democracy is eternal vigilance. Like the Hong ni naman ito, parang it's so cliche. Don't we all know this? You have to tell me. Stop nagging me. I mean, it's common sense, and yet it's not. It's not. I think that's really it. You really can't let your guard down ever. I mean. That's really what it is. We let our guard down. At the same time, some people are just so much smarter. They use everything they have in their power Mm -hmm. to change the narrative or to make things happen in their favor. I mean, I really don't know how it happened again. We all got lax. We all got selfish. You know, we always blame our leaders. But what about us? What have you done to not make this happen? I know I kept making these documentaries. Mm
1: -hmm. I don't know
0: what the others have been doing. We can't blame our leaders. I mean, it all begins with you right so we're always trying to answer that but all these people complaining what have they done what have they sacrificed it's not easy you give up some comfort to not make it happen i mean i I always wondered how did hitler get away with that i mean para, are the germans that stupid and then it doesn't happen that way it's so gradual mm-hmm. it's happened to us it's so gradual it, caught, it it caught us off guard one moment you're laughing you're amused by someone who speaks differently. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> you lose all freedoms and people start to die. I mean,
1: hmm.
0: I really don't know how these things happen, but it's not its not nice. It shouldn't happen again. And, and this coming election, it's so critical. I think it's the most critical ever. A lot of the holdovers from martial law, anyone related to them, are still around, are still influencing what could happen. And a lot of them are growing old. And yet, they have established a really strong bedrock of support just because they've been around for so long. So name any bad guy in history, they still are related to the martial era.
2: Exactly. And we're facing historical revision re- revisionism nowadays, right? And it's not... I mean, from my observation, we tend to frame history in terms of people, individuals, um, personalities, such and such. But then... Exactly. How did Hitler get away with it? Because there's a whole system that was complicit in it. How do the Marcuses still continue to get away with this? There's that whole system. So where do you even begin? Exactly. And you, yeah. And you also mentioned that, yeah, it should start with ourselves. And then you said that between Batas Militar and EDSA were 10 years, right? And before that, you're speaking about how people started to censor themselves. And around that time for yourself, how did you sort of reckon with that self censorship? How did you or your peers or other writers you looked up to sort of unlearn self censorship maybe or learn to be brave enough to overcome it again and speak freely? How was it? You
0: mean when I was working already or during martial law? Because when I was working, Um, wala martial law. uh,
2: uh, Well, while you were working between EDSA and the making of Batas Militar. Well, I'd like to think I never did self-censorship.
0: So it's not an issue for me, even the people I work with. I won't work with people who are afraid. So I don't think it's something I grapple with. And then going back to, you know, when I said that it starts with yourself, it can start really simple. And so I'm digressing. It can start with like, if you are bullied in school, tell your teacher, make sure something happens. It starts that small. You let the bully get the way that bully might be the next president you know, or your employer. That simple. You you have a child who's been a brat, you know, correct that attitude. Do it right on the spot and keep doing it until the child gets it right. It's really that simple. Don't spoil kids who will turn out to, to be bratty. I mean, really that simple. And it just grows from simple things like that. I mean, Marcus was convicted for murder, for killing um, the political opponent of his father, Nalundasan. Mm. He was convicted. And yet, the Supreme Court overturned the decision because they found him too promising, too intelligent. Sayang. Sayang future niyo. Oh, ayan, tuloy na future natin lahat. You know, it really starts with small things. It's so intimidating kasi to think of just changing the whole system, all aspects of society. That's too big for us. So do it whenever you can. And, and you know, the pandemic is supposed to, you know, you always wish sometimes when things bad happen, you say, mag end of the world na para we or what. And the pandemic is it. And you think people would change. And I know I'm learning whatever lesson I'm supposed to learn, you know, simplify the most important thing is not are not things, Families, everything, you don't need much. But the thing is, some people are not learning it or making changes, how frustrating, right? Mm-hmm. And this is a good time to learn. And if no one, if some are not, my gosh. And we're coming to elections again. Wow.
3: Yeah. Well, speaking and- of elections, some people are asking me, what how can they can do to help a candidate that's not well, not um, not a Marcos. I said, you know what's the best? And taking from your point of just being, uh, doing what you can, talk to your neighbors. Talk to the people who actually have your relationship with you. Talk to them about the candidate they should be voting for. Instead, I, I, I find it a little bit more useful than, than just posting a lot online or inundating Viber groups with your messages about whatever.
0: Yeah, or talk <laughs> to your casambahay exactly. or your younger nieces and nephews. Yeah, it may not get your way this election, but start planting the seeds.
2: I was talking to some childhood friends about it. Um, sabi ko, cause uh, the conversation you're upset about Bong Bong filing his candidacy again, and then sabi ng isa, why don't you? I mean, people have the internet; they can Google this. They have the capacity to find out why. So why are they asking you? Why are you making time for them? Why are you making time to explain it to them personally? And then to sabi ko parang. It's because I don't trust these algorithms. I don't trust Google to give you the right answers. And I think that's the trouble as well, right? All this disinformation that's circulating unchecked. You mentioned eternal vigilance. But this is already beyond, I mean, this is a degree of vigilance that, I don't know, maybe you have to be omniscient already to be able to filter or really uh, process everything all the information on the internet but then that's I'm feeling that's in yun Battleground eh, campaigns and the turnout of elections but as you Especially said since uh, people can't go out
3: but you, you were you were pointing out to me earlier that the you know the internet the internet the other day went off the, the socials yeah
2: system. yeah so, so i mean it might not be the internet mismo because, of course, a lot of Filipinos still don't have access to the internet. It's only free Facebook. But that effect trickles down to daily life. What people hear, what people see, tindahan. Yeah. And,
1: and
2: yeah, it could disappear anytime. And it's just, yeah, but
0: the internet plays a big role in
2: yeah. you know, shaping the democracy.
0: So a lot of journalists are coming together around the world mm-hmm. to really figure out you know, what these you know platforms should be doing and are not doing because they're really wrecking democracy. I mean, they play a big role. I don't think the Philippines are that forgetful or that gullible, but the things they read are the manufactured stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: all these platforms have a big, big responsibility mm. to play. But it, it, I mean, without, you know, there, there has to be some regulation of some sort. I don't know how, but it cannot be this way. It cannot be this way. Um.
3: But, yeah, but the argument is regulation, but of course, that's the government. Exactly,
0: there's that argument, but there has to be a balance. Yeah. I mean, parang pakapalan na. It's like the Supreme Court said that VP Lenny brother, won the vice presidency. Tapos diba? Let's move on. But they keep oh. saying that she won, she did not win. Many times in different places in the internet, you see, parang pakapalan na lang, diba? So,
1: Mm-mm.
0: wow. It's like, how can you keep saying this? It's not true, but... Okay. And decent people are like, I can't put up with
2: this, I can't deal with this. It's insane, it's absurd, yes, and nga, all this stuff you see online, this conjecture, this propaganda it just i mean nandun na yung batas militar there all there's all this um evidence, there's all this clearly written journalism and research that proves what happened during martial law and is it being drowned out? I mean, I hope people aren't forgetful as well, but how did we get here? <laughs>
1: I I mean, that's
2: not something that we can answer. It's just three people alone, but it's certainly a question I've been asking myself every day for the past several years.
3: What are you working on now, Kara? Can we ask you that?
0: (laughs) Several documentaries. One is an environmental documentary on illegal logging, another one is on martial law. (laughs) Yeah. But we're focusing on the victims. Hmm. You know, Batas Militar had a lot of analysts. You know the big players at that time, mm. but this will just be the victims, yeah, <sighs> because even their stores are being questioned. So I mean, you can't get anyone, any of the Marcuses to return the money to even you can't even get an apology. No one is jailed. So at least you know these victims have to have their narrative intact.
2: Mm-hmm. at
0: the very least. So that's what we're trying to achieve in the next documentary,
2: actually. I'm curious as well, how was the reaction to Batas Militar when it was released? And have you heard any more recent um, reactions to it as well? Or reception? Oh, well, I think my cousin
0: calls it the most bootleg documentary. I mean, you see it all over the net. You can't even control it anymore. Every time there's you know, martial comes around, the okay, you know, anniversary or people power. Me and my production team were so afraid to watch TV or look at the internet because we always see portions of our video. Sometimes I'm jury for a documentary and I'll see, you know, footage stolen from the documentary. It's a so bootleg. I guess it means a lot of people watched it. I just hope they heed the message. Um, When it first came out, it was interesting now that you reminded me the context was... President Ramos was the president, and there was talk of uh, changing the constitution and extending his term. So it seemed like another martial again, right? So it was actually dangerous to broadcast that documentary. So when Channel Two broadcast it, they even locked down all their gates. They were so paranoid; it felt like martial all over again. Um, no one was allowed inside the building without, you know, they were just stricter more than usual. And there was a lot of talk. In fact, we also put in a request to interview um, former Defense Secretary Juan Ponce really, Enrile, architect of Marshall as well. And he declined. And we have it in writing. And a talk show on another channel talked about the documentary and asked, and really, who was a guest? It, it, I'm curious, you were not in the documentary and you're one of the most important people during Marshall. And he said, oh, I was not invited to be part of the documentary so i guess you know it, it had some impact and you know every year we still get uh, invitations to schools or to organizations to talk about it to show or screen the film so i think it's um i'm gl- i'm grateful it still goes around it's been i think i don't know maybe 20 years or something or 20 plus years since we We broadcast it in nineteen ninety-seven. How many years has that been? It's it's still relevant to this day. I I hear people saying that, you know, they they watched it in school, which I'm happy they did. And even I I am sure you know Shao Chua Irwin. He said he became a historian because of Batas Militar. He can recite the lines of the narrator and all the interviewees, verbatim to this day.
3: In the same same voice as you in the same
0: voice, yeah. The trying hard voice, his version, but yeah. Mm. So I think it made a big impact on a lot of people, more than we ever thought it would. Because in the beginning, when we were asked to do it, it was just supposed to be for schools. They were even thinking, oh, maybe like do 10 volumes of this. You know, One about the economy, one about politics, one about media. And then in the end, let's just make it short. It was a budget constraint issue as well. And then towards the end, I thought, can we just broadcast this so more people would see it? And we just asked Channel Two, and they agreed. it yeah, was that simple. We we didn't know it would be so big. Yeah, I mean, my
3: me- my memory of it is like every Sunday. it was like portioned off or something like that.
0: No, but, it's just a one-off. One-off, number. But, but other channels would replay it right after ABS showed it. Yeah,
2: or maybe watch the bootleg in copy. Besides yeah. school, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't. They didn't even teach me about martial law. They just totally skipped over that part in Philippine history. Wow! And yeah. this was early two thousands.
3: Yeah. yeah. Um, I
2: think it's going to
0: change, and I hope it's it changes because there is now a Human Rights Violations Victims Memorial Commission, tasked to do a lot of things, including fix all the things that the kids are reading. But shortly after the law was enacted. <laughs> President Duterte the came in, and so it was a little difficult for that commission to get money. But they're trying. In fact, they've um, gathered regularly a team of volunteers to just uh, have an editathon, which they call, to correct um, stuff on the internet, beginning with Wikipedia, anything martial or related. I mean, they know right now um, the, the books are irrelevant, so they're doing it online. So there are attempts to fix this. And I mean the fact that we're going to be building a museum. It's called, I think, the Freedom Museum in honor of the marshal of victims. I mean, that's like receivable enough that it happened. I mean, this state actually even acknowledges it happened. I mean, Congress and Senate acknowledge it happened. That's why they even gave reparation pay a few years back, just very recently. So no one should deny that it even ever happened. No one can say it was the best years of our lives because it wasn't.
2: Actually, Ms. Cara, you know, um, they're one of the main ways that people gaslight younger generations. Right now, there are a lot of younger people, millennials, Gen Z, who are lining up to register to vote. And a lot of ways when people gaslight younger generations, they say, you weren't even born during martial law. You weren't even alive. At my recibo. And that also tends to make people question themselves as well. Nah, If I wasn't there, should I just listen to the older person talking about it? But then, who do they listen to? Where do they hear it from? So that's really the importance of having documentation no and, and, and
3: especially hearing now if, if you're working on a documentary now documenting the victims voices the people who suffered most under martial law then that's really important to hear especially now
0: yeah you don't know no judgments we'll just hear their stories that's all yeah.
3: Oh. yeah well thank you again cara i mean for agreeing to for uh, thank you guest on podcast 1081 yeah on on because you were describing it uh, earlier where, when You were in martial law, you couldn't travel, and since the meet, since Facebook went off the other day, and there was uh, Mariah was describing that there was no access to media. Ah, it seems like,
0: <laughs> yeah, that's the media blackout we had in, oh in, in
2: the 70s, in the 80s, yeah.
3: Oh, I guess we got, got, got it. A
2: but you know, I have, a, I also have a question, Kai, that I wanted to ask considering all of this and the experiences you've been through. And your career, what can you say, na, um, what can journalists, artists, filmmakers, writers, what can they do in the face of historical revisionism?
0: We just have to keep telling the truth and not get tired of telling the truth and not be afraid. As simple as that. And it's not easy to do, I know. And I know, it. it even for me, sometimes I hesitate only because I have, A child, it changes things. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine for others. That's why you always have to stay so clean. You have to stay clean. To have, you know, the the gravitas to say what you want to say. So important. You know, so many hard-hitting politicians make sense, but because they're not clean, then you know, and people can smell it somehow.
2: Yeah, yeah. It doesn't
0: prosper, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: They make sense, but alamung marumiren, so wala. Uh-huh. so more so for journalists and and now they it's, they can't afford to be timid now they have to reclaim we have to reclaim our role as you know providing checks and balance being vanguards for the truth it's been disappointing how they've behaved the last six years honestly journalists? yes okay okay natakot
3: napaisip ako doon ah oh yeah,
0: yeah. Or I mean I know it is um it's driven by big business because most of them are owned by businessmen, but mm. even then you know you can test the limits you can try. But you they even try? So
3: I think there are a couple of journalists i I can name that have really tried. Or oh yeah,
0: I'm not saying there's none, but they're not a lot. They're not, they're not a, a lot to make an impact, or we wouldn't be where we are now.
3: Okay. Oh. Okay. I would actually just add. I don't think I would just blame journalists. I guess the uh, media in the last six years. I would blame media before the six years. I think we're here because of a reason. It didn't happen in a vacuum. But anyway. But thank you, <laughs> thank you again, Kara. <laughs> really great answers and
1: thank
0: you, thank you for
3: sharing for sharing all the stories.
0: Thank you also for having me. Bitin nga no, biglang <laughs> nagano.
3: Oh. Memory. Oh. Well,
0: to remember all
2: that. My goodness.
3: <laughs> oh my. Thank you for listening to Podcast 1081, Ma Kwentong Martialo.
2: The special limited series is powered by Podmetrics and Podcast Network Asia.
3: Before we close this episode, let me end with a quote from our times. This is from Biches Santiago. Hanapin mo ang talinhaga ng inyong panahon.
2: Tune in to the next episode of Podcast 1081.